section three of a history of our own times volume one by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter two statesmen and parties part one lord melbourne was the first minister of the crown when the queen succeeded to the throne he was a man who then and always after made himself particularly dear to the queen and for whom she had the strongest regard he was of kindly somewhat indolent nature fair and even generous toward his political opponents of the most genial disposition toward his friends he was emphatically not a strong man he was not a man to make good grow where it was not already growing to adopt the expression of a great author long before that time his eccentric wife lady caroline lamb had excused herself for some of her follies and frailties by pleading that her husband was not a man to watch over any one's morals he was a kindly counsellor to a young queen and happily for herself the young queen in this case had strong clear sense enough of her own not to be absolutely dependent on any counsel lord melbourne was not a statesman his best qualities personal kindness and good nature apart were purely negative he was unfortunately not content even with the reputation for a sort of indolent good-nature which he might have well deserved he strove to make himself appear hopelessly idle trivial and careless when he really was serious and earnest he seemed to make it his business to look like one in whom no human affairs could call up a gleam of interest he became the fanferron of levities which he never had we have amusing pictures of him as he occupied himself in blowing a feather or nursing a sofa cushion while receiving an important and perhaps highly sensitive deputation from this or that commercial interest those who knew him insisted that he really was listening with all his might and main that he had sat up the whole night before studying the question which he seemed to think so unworthy of any attention and that so far from being like horace wholly absorbed in his trifles he was at very great pains to keep up the appearance of a trifler a brilliant critic has made a lively and amusing attack on this alleged peculiarity if the truth must be told says sidney smith our viscount is somewhat of an impostor everything about him seems to betoken careless desolation any one would suppose from his manner that he was playing at chuck farthing with human happiness that he was always on the heel of pastime that he would giggle away the great charter and decide by the method of teetotum whether my lords the bishops should or should not retain their seats in the house of lords all this is but the mere vanity of surprising and making us believe that he can play with kingdoms as other men can with ninepins i am sorry to hurt any man's feelings and to brush away the magnificent fabric of levity and gaiety he has reared but i accuse our minister of honesty and diligence i deny that he is careless or rash he is nothing more than a man of good understanding and good principle disguised in the eternal and somewhat wearisome affectation of a political roue such a masquerading might perhaps have been excusable or even attractive in the case of a man of really brilliant and commanding talents lookers-on are always apt to be fascinated by the spectacle of a man of well-recognized strength and force of character playing for a moment the part of an indolent trifler the contrast is charming in a brilliant prince hal 
or such a sardanopolis as byron drew in our own time a considerable amount of the popularity of lord palmerston was inspired by the amusing antagonism between his assumed levity and his well-known force of intellect and strength of will but in lord melbourne's case the affectation had no such excuse or happy effect he was not by any means a palmerston he was only fitted to rule in the quietest times he was a poor speaker utterly unable to encounter the keen penetrating criticisms of lyndhurst or the vehement and remorseless invectives of broom debates were then conducted with a bitterness of personality unknown or at all events very rarely known in our days even in the house of lords language was often interchanged of the most virulent hostility the rushing impetuosity and fury of broom's style had done much then to inflame the atmosphere which in our days is usually so cool and moderate it probably added to the warmth of the attacks on the ministry of lord melbourne that the prime minister was supposed to be an especial favourite with the young queen when victoria came to the throne the duke of wellington gave frank expression to his feelings as to the future of his party he was of opinion that the tories would never have any chance with a young woman for sovereign i have no small talk he said and peel has no manners it had probably not occurred to the duke of wellington to think that a woman could be capable of as sound a constitutional policy and could show as little regard for personal predilections in the business of government as any man all this however only tended to embitter the feeling against the whig government lord melbourne's constant attendance on the young queen was regarded with keen jealousy and dissatisfaction according to some critics the prime minister was endeavouring to inspire her with all his own gay heedlessness of character and temperament according to others lord melbourne's purpose was to make himself agreeable and indispensable to the queen to surround her with his friends relations and creatures and thus to get a lifelong hold of power in england in defiance of political changes in parties it is curious now to look back on much that was said in the political and personal heats and bitternesses of the time if lord melbourne had been a french mayor of the palace whose real object was to make himself virtual ruler of the state and to hold the sovereign as a puppet in his hands there could not have been a greater anger fear and jealousy since that time we have all learned on the very best authority that lord melbourne actually was himself the person to advise the queen to show some confidence in the tories to hold out the olive branch a little to them as he expressed it he does not appear to have been greedy of power or to have used any unfair means of getting or keeping it the character of the young sovereign seems to have impressed him deeply his real or affected levity gave way to a genuine and lasting desire to make her life as happy and her reign as successful as he could the queen always felt the warmest affection and gratitude for him and showed it long after the public had given up the suspicion that she could be a puppet in the hands of a minister still it is certain that the queen's prime minister was by no means a popular man at the time of her accession even observers who had no political or personal interest whatever in the conditions of cabinets were displeased to see the opening of the new reign so much to all appearance under the influence of one who either was or tried to be a mere lounger 
the deputations went away offended and disgusted when lord melbourne played with feathers or dandled sofa cushions in their presence the almost fierce energy and strenuousness of a man like broom showed in overwhelming contrast to the happy-go-lucky airs and graces of the premier it is likely that there was quite as much of affectation in the one case as in the other but the affectation of a devouring zeal for the public service told at least far better than the other in the heat and stress of debate when the new reign began the ministry had two enemies or critics in the house of lords of the most formidable character either alone would have been a trouble to a minister of far stronger mould than lord melbourne but circumstances threw them both for the moment into a chance alliance against him one of these was lord broom no stronger and stranger a figure than his is described in the modern history of england he was gifted with the most varied and striking talents and with a capacity for labour which sometimes seemed almost superhuman not merely had he the capacity for labour but he appeared to have a positive passion for work his restless energy seemed as if it must stretch itself out on every side seeking new fields of conquest the study that was enough to occupy the whole time and wear out the frame of other men was only recreation to him he might have been described as one possessed by a very demon of work his physical strength never gave way his high spirits never deserted him his self-confidence was boundless he thought he knew everything and could do everything better than any other man he delighted in giving evidence that he understood the business of the specialist better than the specialist himself his vanity was overweening and made him ridiculous almost as often and as much as his genius made him admired the comic literature of more than a generation had no subject more fruitful than the vanity and restlessness of lord broom he was beyond doubt a great parliamentary orator his style was too diffuse and sometimes too uncouth to suit a day like our own when form counts for more than substance when passion seems out of place in debate and not to exaggerate is far more the object than to try to be great broom's action was wild and sometimes even furious his gestures were singularly ungraceful his manners were grotesque but of his power over his hearers there could be no doubt that power remained with him until a far later date and long after the years when men usually continued to take part in political debate lord broom could be impassioned impressive and even overwhelming he was not an orator of the highest class his speeches have not stood the test of time apart from the circumstances of the hour and the personal power of the speaker they could hardly arouse any great delight or even interest for they are by no means models of english style and they have little of that profound philosophical interest that pregnancy of thought and meaning that splendour of eloquence which make the speeches of burke always classic and even in a certain sense always popular among us in truth no man could have done with abiding success all the things which broom did successfully for the hour on law on politics on literature on languages on science on art on industrial and commercial enterprise he professed to pronounce with the authority of a teacher if broom knew a little of law said o'connell when the former became lord chancellor he would know a little of everything 
the anecdote was told in another way too which perhaps makes it even more piquant the new lord chancellor knows a little of everything in the world even of law brooms was an excitable and self-asserting nature he had during many years shown himself an embodied influence a living speaking force in the promotion of great political and social reforms if his talents were great if his personal vanity was immense let it be said that his services to the cause of human freedom and education were simply inestimable as an opponent of slavery in the colonies as an advocate of political reform at home of law reform of popular education of religious equality he had worked with indomitable zeal with resistless passion and with splendid success but his career passed through two remarkable changes which to a great extent interfered with the full efficacy of his extraordinary powers the first was when from popular tribune and reformer he became lord chancellor in eighteen thirty the second was when he was left out of office on the reconstruction of the whig ministry in april eighteen thirty five and he passed for the remainder of his life into the position of an independent or unattached critic of the measures and policy of other men it has never been clearly known why the whigs so suddenly threw over broom the common belief is that his eccentricities and his almost savage temper made him intolerable in a cabinet it has been darkly hinted that for a while his intellect was actually under a cloud as people said that of chatham was during a momentous season lord brougham was not a man likely to forget or forgive the wrong which he must have believed that he had sustained at the hands of the whigs he became the fiercest and most formidable of lord melbourne's hostile critics the other opponent who has been spoken of was lord lyndhurst lord lyndhurst resembled lord brougham in the length of his career and in capacity for work if in nothing else lyndhurst who was born in boston the year before the tea-ships were boarded in that harbour and their cargoes flung into the water has been heard addressing the house of lords in all vigour and fluency by men who were yet far from middle age he was one of the most effective parliamentary debaters of a time which has known such men as peel and palmerston gladstone and disraeli bright and cobden his style was singularly and even severely clear direct and pure his manner was easy and graceful his voice remarkably sweet and strong nothing could have been in greater contrast than his clear correct nervous argument and the impassioned invectives and overwhelming strength of broom lyndhurst had as has been said an immense capacity for work when the work had to be done but his natural tendency was as distinctly toward indolence as brougham's was toward unresting activity nor were lyndhurst's political convictions ever very clear by the habitude of associating with the tories and receiving office from them and speaking for them and attacking their enemies with argument and sarcasm lyndhurst finally settled down into all the ways of toryism but nothing in his varied history showed that he had any particular preference that way and there were many passages in his career when it would seem as if a turn of chance decided what path of political life he was to follow as a keen debater he was perhaps hardly ever excelled in parliament but he had neither the passion nor the genius of an orator and his capacity was narrow indeed in its range when compared with the astonishing versatility and omnivorous mental activity of broom as a speaker 
he was always equal he seemed to know no varying moods or fits of mental lassitude whenever he spoke he reached at once the same high level as a debater the very fact may in itself perhaps be taken as conclusive evidence that he was not an orator the higher qualities of the orator are no more to be summoned at will than those of the poet these two men were without any comparison the two leading debaters in the house of lords lord melbourne had not at that time in the upper house a single man of first class or even of second class debating power on the bench of the ministry an able writer has well remarked that the position of the ministry in the house of lords might be compared to that of a water-logged wreck into which enemies from all quarters are pouring their broadsides End of section three